Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. I'm Samantha Fields, in for Kai Rizdahl. Thanks for joining us. It is Tuesday, which means it's time for our weekly deep dive. Today, we're talking about the AR-15, the gun we hear about after what feels like almost every mass shooting, including the one last week at the Covenant School in Nashville, where three kids and three adults were killed. Right. Last week, I mentioned the Washington Post's American Icon series, which is just so powerful. It profiles the AR-15, the most popular rifle on the consumer market. And it there's so much in this reporting. We really wanted to dig into it and learn more about the rise of the AR-15 and how it really has become this grim symbol of division in our country. Um, And just I'll flag for people who may be listening with folks with sensitive ears, there is going to be probably some discussion of some really challenging topics in, in this conversation. So just please be a little mindful of that. But here to make us smart about this is Todd Frankel, a fi- financial reporter at The Washington Post and one of the authors of the American Icon series. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. First of all, can you describe the AR-15? We often hear about the AR-15 or AR-15-style rifles. What what does that mean? Yeah, it's sort of a, a broad definition, it's, and it's one of the things that makes it tricky for like lawmakers trying to you know deal with this weapon if they if they want to. Um, you know, it sort of fits into that rubric of assault weapon, which means mm-hmm. it, it's a rifle, so it has a long barrel. It's not a handgun, right? Um, it's not a hunting rifle um, because uh, of its ability to fire uh, quite rapidly. Um, very often it has a magazine that can carry like 30 bullets, if not more, at a time. Um, but, you know, it has a grip that, that's like a handgun. And, you know, for folks who've never seen one, or everyone I think has seen one in their mind's eye at least, you know, it sort of looks mm-hmm. like that classic military infantryman rifle. I think that's the way it's best to describe it. And that really is what it was originally designed for, right? These guns weren't originally intended or or, or designed to be for people to just sort of have at home, right? Exactly right. Yeah, no, it was originally designed, uh, invented by this guy named uh, Eugene Stoner, a very famous gun designer. And he was charged with trying to make a, a replacement rifle for the U.S. military that wanted to get rid of its World War II era rifles. And so, yeah, he came up with this design and his first customer was the uh, U.S. military. How common or, I guess, popular are these style of guns in the U.S. right now? I mean, do we have any sense of how many there are, the size of the market, how common? Yeah, you know, it's so the federal government doesn't uh, really track this or certainly doesn't make public what it knows about the number of AR-15s out there. But um, industry groups and, you know, you, you can sort of triangulate the market. Um, and so, and we did it a, a survey too, and we found that one in 20 U.S. adults or roughly around 16 million people own at least one AR-15. Um, and there's somewhere between at least 20 million AR-15s out there um, in the U.S. And it's a recent phenomenon. I think one of the more surprising things that we found was that it's only in the last decade that like two-thirds of the AR-15s that are on the market reach the market. So it's it's sort of a juggernaut that's really quite recent. It's not a long-standing firearm tradition. It's a it's, it's almost a new thing. I have to say that's the piece that of your reporting that stood out to me the most and that I really sort of have been thinking about for a while now. 
I didn't realize how recently these rose in popularity. It, it does feel sort of, as I said at the at the beginning, that they're everywhere. We hear about them all the time now, especially in the wake of mass shootings. What was it? What changed that made them become so much more popular in the last sort of 10, 15 years? Yeah, I think that was one of the things that we found sort of surprising as we were doing the reporting too, is that you know, even the gun industry itself was not a big fan of the AR-15 when it first came on the market, right? So it was invented in the late 50s, military takes it up in the 60s, and it sort of subsists as like a small, oddball, like niche weapon for decades, right? And up until, through, so the America had that assault weapons ban that went from 94 to 2004, and even after that expired, um, the U.S. Gun makers, for the most part, were sort of hesitant. You know, they they weren't really welcome at the industry trade shows, and gun makers and gun owners didn't really know what to do with it. Didn't see why they would should have an AR-15, and it, so it's really again only been in the last decade that this thing has just really exploded on the scene, or maybe it's more like fifteen years. Um, and it's it's become a, a symbol, even more so than just a weapon. It's it's taken on the sort of life of its own. And what role did marketing play in getting it there? Yeah, the marketing was interesting for us to look at too because it's different than um, the traditional marketing as we think of like, you know, guns have always had a hunting background, right? So you, you think of your grandfather's perhaps, you know, hunting rifle with the wood stock and, or if you think about the, uh, the gun you might see in the back on a, a, of a pickup truck, you know, in the, in the gun rack. Um, but the, the advertising, or for personal protection, right, the handgun market, um, but the, the advertising for the AR-15 is... Um, was notably more aggressive, notably more tactical, military, um, police, uh, and and, th- and threatening and, and fear. And so we, we saw that there was a real change in tone in how the industry marketed this gun in particular. And how you sort of mentioned in your reporting the halo effect, which is related to that sort of focus on the use of similar guns or these guns by military and by police, right? How how effective was that? Why is that so important? Yeah, the halo effect is like, you know, sort of advertising term of like, you know, um, one one thing sort of leading on and encouraging others to use it. So the AR-15, uh, at first gun makers, like, all right, we can sell this to the police um, and military market, right? Um, Smith & Wesson, one of the biggest gun makers in the country, um, introduced its first AR-15, its first rifle, actually, in its you know hundred plus year history. It was called the Ebon P-15, and that stood for Military and Police 15 AR-15. Um, and and the whole thing was to let regular consumers sort of think and believe, and it was true too. But also that they, you know, you're using the same weapon as the pros do. You know, professional grade. This is this is not you know some simple weapon. This is the same thing that you know the the cops use or the military uses, and that really proved to be alluring and and really. Uh, part of the cell and the and the drive of this weapon. Another thing that seems to drive the sale the sale of AR-15s is elections, which is kind of wild to see the direct link between you know a rise in sales of something like an AR-15 with contentious presidential elections or um, potential changes to gun laws. Why why is there such a strong link there? Yeah, we, I think we call the AR-15, it's like this barometer of fear. And mm. the, the the gun was, um, you know, yeah, with the, you know, President Obama, when he was uh, first elected in 2008, you know, this the sales of this gun jumped because there was a Democrat in office and the belief was, oh, you know, maybe they'll bring back the assault weapons ban, which had only expired, you know, four or five years earlier. So 
It is remarkable, though, with each contentious presidential election, with each actually, unfortunately, school shooting or mass shooting, and there's talk of new regulations, the focus falls on this weapon. And as a result, and this is partly driven, the the gun industry itself realizes that they can drive sales by ginning up fear of new bans or, you know, someone coming to take away your gun. And those, the sales of AR-15s, all gun sales go up like in these moments, but the sales of AR-15s in particular jump just much more than any other sort of weapon. It's, it's, it's remarkable. It is remarkable. And one of the things I want to circle back to sort of when it went from being something that the industry wasn't even, many in the industry weren't even that supportive of, weren't really that into, right, to sort of where we are now, where you said something like one in 20 people have these guns in their homes. And I'm Mm -hmm. curious, you know, it seemed like from your reporting, a lot of the motivation for gun makers like Smith & Wesson and others to start making AR-15s and selling them was about money, right? Like gun sales were flat for sort of a few years in the early 2000s, and they were looking for a way to get more people to buy guns. Talk about the money piece here. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, so I, I work on the financial desk of the Post, and so I'm always sort of curious about the the money end of things. And you know, the gun right. industry is a business. You know, it's uh, a big they one. Have profits. And, yes. Um, you know, so so one of the former Smith West employees point out to me, it's like it's actually small, like in the terms of size of the national economy, but the the amount of attention and like you know just destruction mm-hmm. and problems that it causes is you know way outside, way above its punching weight, right? Um, so yeah, so. At the time, you know, so the assault weapons ban ends in like 2004 and the gun industry is sort of mired in a slump. Um, you know, the, you can only, guns are sort of an odd product because, right, um, they last forever, right, for for decades, right? You can't, mm-hmm. you have to figure out a way to like make sales. And so, you know, they you could only sell so many hunting rifles and handguns. Um, and then this new category comes along and it was really a, a savior. And I think the industry, um, you know, I think it was remarkable, like, uh, a really well-known firm like uh, Sturm Ruger, they realized that you know revenue side they they were earning about maybe you know two thousand dollars for each handgun they sold, but they were earning a thousand dollars for each AR fifteen. So that wow. that for them made a business case for why they wanted to enter this market. The AR fifteen has really become more than just a gun in this country. You know, looking back on your reporting and all the people that you talk to, what do you think it's come to symbolize in American life and politics? Yeah, it's much more than uh, a gun, just a gun, right? Um, So, you know, folks described it to me as the modern day musket, right? So the sort of, if the musket is like the founding weapon of the Revolutionary War that, you know, established this country. And so to call the AR-15 the modern day musket sort of elevates it to a almost an untouchable place. Um, you know, we have people in Congress, congressmen, Republicans, who wear um, lapel pins that are little AR-15s. Folks mm-hmm. have T-shirts that say, you know, come and take it. Um, it. It has become synonymous with, you know, gun rights. And then on the flip side, it's become the target of a lot of, you know, the folks who want to push for new gun regulation, right? I mean, so... There, most shootings actually, you know, right, still occur. Uh, most homicides occur with handguns, but AR-15s um, sort of strike unusual amounts of fear and also soak up unusual amounts of attention um, in American culture. And it's it's really become this lightning rod in, you know, all these different debates that we have. You've talked about the assault weapons ban, which was only in place in this country from 1994 to 2004. President Biden has been pushing for another similar kind of ban for a while. It seems 
pretty clear to me that there are not the votes there. But I'm curious what you would say about sort of the conversation now about any kind of gun legislation, maybe, you know, this in particular, but sort of any other kind of, um, you know, legislation around guns. Where are we with that? Yeah, President Biden's been very uh, forthright about, uh, you know, pretty much every time uh, the issue of guns comes up, or even when he's at, you know, some other talk about a different topic, he'll mention that he would love to see the assault weapons ban brought back. Um, and, you know, Congress, uh, the House of Representatives, you know, last year, when Democrats still controlled it, did actually pass an assault weapons ban. It never took up any action or saw any light of day in, in the Senate, so it just died. But mm-hmm. um, it's a very partisan issue, right? And, you know, I think, you know, I'm not even sure you could actually get a Democratic um, with a razor-thin margin uh, of Democrats in the Senate to vote for it. And Republicans just never will. Um, it's a really one of the sort of intractable issues um, that, you know, I, I'm not sure anyone would ever imagine back in 94 that they could have passed a, an assault weapons ban. So you never say never. And it's just one of those yeah. issues that is going to loom there. And then you also have the Supreme Court, right, which um, right. has been rolling back on laws. So who knows if it would even matter what Congress does. Some of the stories uh, in this series are really just awful in terms of the consequences on people's life and health, the loved ones lost, the very graphic nature of what AR-15s do to bodies, especially children's bodies. How has that been for you covering this story? And like, what, what do you have to do to sort of take care of yourself when you're reporting on something like this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, um, I worked with a, a huge team of reporters at the Post um, on this. And, you know, it's, um, we felt it was really important to uh, sort of, you know, a lot of these instances, we sort of hear, see the death tolls and you, and you see, you know, sort of this shock scenes afterwards. But we really wanted to sort of um, get inside and sort of really explain why these shootings with the AR-15 are different than, than other shootings and, and really capture what is driving this debate? What's at stake? Um, it, it was difficult, um, you know, but we have reporters, you know, and I think you see this across the country where mass shootings are so frequent. Like some of these reporters or even victims, right, are showing up at two, three of these, right? Um, there's that mm-hmm. woman who survived one mass shooting and happened to be in Tennessee and Nashville when that unfortunate school shooting occurred. Um, and it's just, it's becoming so commonplace that it's, um, I think we're really sort of feel like we're, it's more important to tell the story and, and, and worry about the, you know, deal with our own consequences, however they may fall. Todd Frankel is a financial reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Mm. Tough one. And I was just looking earlier, I was online on social media and uh, saw a tweet from Nelba Marquez Green, whose daughter, Anna, was killed at Sandy Hook. Um, and today should have been her 17th birthday. So when we're talking about sort of the the toll of these guns and the rise of these guns, um, I'm glad you brought that up at the end because it's it's huge. And this this idea of it becoming so common is so yeah. rough. Um when I brutal, used to, yeah. when I used to work in the Middle East, um, I remember there were all these bombings in different countries, especially in Iraq and Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. you know, you got to this point where there were bombings with really high death tolls every day, and 
we didn't talk about all of them in the news because at some point people just sort of tune it out. Like, oh, there's been another bombing in Iraq today and another 20, 30 people are dead. And those are people with lives and families and things. Mm -hmm. And it feels very similar to how we've started talking about mass shootings because they are so common. And I, I really hope we don't get to the place where people just become these numbers and that it it stops, you know, registering that these were people's lives, you know. Um, yeah. And it will be um, fascinating to see how, you know, sort of Gen Z and younger as they enter the voting population. Mm-hmm start so to really push for this. by these school shootings in a way that even right. you and I weren't. Exactly, because this is the this is the generation that has really grown up with the drills and the lockdowns and like I, I hid under my desk in training for tornadoes when I was a kid, you know, mm-hmm. and they have all of these traumatic experiences training for mass shootings and some of them have experienced it. And I wonder Many what that's them. going to translate into when it comes to actual political leaders. so Yeah. It was interesting reading this piece and, and talking, as Todd was, about just how recent this is and mm-hmm. the rise of these guns in particular. But also I saw a graph from, um, from a different uh, piece of reporting also on social media that had this very, it was very distinctive and it, it sort of was this scatterplot graph and it had a line marking when the assault weapons ban expired. And the Mm -hmm. incredible growth in mass shootings after that corresponds very much with the rise in popularity of this gun. And, you know, it was after 2004. And it really is just, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since I saw it. Hmm. So if you're listening to this and you have thoughts on uh, the rise in popularity of the AR-15, we'd love to hear from you. Our number is 508 827-6278. That's also known as 508-UB-SMART. Or you can email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org. We'll be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy.
Not to keep things too heavy, but since we are coming back, I'll start the news fix with something also related to war and I guess the weapons of war, Um, but a little bit distance. Uh, NATO, because of Russia's ongoing war with Ukraine, NATO now has a new member. Finland joined the NATO military alliance on Tuesday, which is, you know, kind of the exact opposite of what what Russia wanted. (laughs) Exactly. Because the whole reason that Russia said it was invading Ukraine was to prevent NATO from expanding and to prevent Ukraine specifically from joining NATO. And now, as a result of their actions, with Finland joining, it doubles the amount of Russia's border that is, you know, bordered by NATO countries, which is an I can't alliance. get over that. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah it is. And, and you know, at, at great cost to the Ukrainians and, and to the Russians. Absolutely. Um, I'm very f- fascinated also by this sort of shift away from neutrality and this idea that more and more European governments are being pushed to take a more active stance. You know, you have this sort of post-World War II desire to just, like, avoid conflict at all costs, stay out of it, like, negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. Don't take the military option unless you absolutely have to. And this seems to be a conflict that's really pushing that, that, you know, desire for neutrality. And Finland's, like, can't do it anymore. Um... And so Finland adopted its neutrality after it was defeated by the Soviets then, not the Russians at the time, but the Soviets Mm -hmm. in World War II. Um, But, you know, the Ukraine invasion is what triggered this. And so that's part one of of my news fix. But while I was looking um, for a little bit more news about Finland joining NATO, I actually saw that Finland's prime minister just kind of got the boot, it seems. Um, So it was a young woman named Sana Marin, I believe is how you say her name, but I may have that wrong. But she was one of the most popular prime ministers in Finland in this century and, like many of the women leaders globally, uh, was really praised for how she handled the COVID-19 pandemic. And she got Finland to join NATO and really brought them, brought her population along with a lot of support for this move. And yet her party lost control of the Finnish parliament and in the system where you have parliaments and prime ministers, whoever has the most seats gets to pick the leader of the government, unlike our system. And so uh, Sunday's election, I'm I'm reading here from The Guardian, in Sunday's election, her center-right Social Democratic Party increased its vote share and number of MPs, ministers of parliament. Nonetheless, she and the SDP have been defeated and Finland is moving to the right. So the leader of the conservative National Coalition Party is likely to be the next prime minister because between his party winning more seats and the sort of collapse of some of the other left-leaning groups in Marin's coalition, um, you know, now it looks like the right and and more conservative parties have enough to form their own coalition and, and push the country a little more rightward. And a big issue 
was the economy. And now that, you know, the pandemic is lessening in its impact on many people, not all people, uh, there's a big push in Finland to return to a bit more uh, restrictive social services or to dial back on spending and to really work on, you know, unemployment uh the person who ended up winning, whose name I'm not even going to attempt, he promised to cut spending on unemployment and benefits and other welfare programs in order to allow tax cuts, uh, which is something that we have all heard before. So it, you know, this is something that's not just happening in Finland. You're seeing a lot of this move um, in other parts of, of Europe as well. And, you know, it's a version of what we get here, too. I was just going to say, this all sounds pretty familiar, the broad strokes mm-hmm. anyway. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What do you have? All right. Mine is a little bit lighter or more of a news you can use kind of news fix here today. Um, if mm-hmm. you are planning to travel internationally anytime soon and you need a new passport or you might need to renew your passport, you might want to send that in right now because there are huge backlogs at the passport agency these days. Um, That was a big thing back in sort of late 2020, 2021, um, when so much was shut down, everything was taking a really long time. I remember I renewed my passport at the end of 2020 and it took a really long time. Um, Mm -hmm. But then it seemed to get better. And now those huge backlogs are back. They're saying the average wait time is two to three months for most people to get their passports back these days. Um, And even if you pay to have it expedited, you're looking at seven to nine weeks, which is pretty long. Um, Now, it seems a lot of this has to do with staffing, which, uh, you know, is also sort of a story that we're hearing in all sorts of industries these days, but and especially in the government. But it's staffing and then it's also a demand issue. They're getting record numbers of people uh, applying for passports and they just can't keep up. So, Uh, If you might need a passport, you might want to get on that soon. Yeah, it's it's always fascinating to me. Anytime I think about passports is um, how few people have passports. You know, we speak about them as if, um, you know, everybody has a passport and this sort of popular narrative of like the international travel culture that you see on Instagram and on um, TikTok or whatever. And it's it's not so common. I feel like there's a lot of FOMO and people feeling like they're the only, only ones not going to these cool places. But a lot of people don't get to travel or don't want to travel. Like people Absolutely. like Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. No. That said, uh, it, I was sort of struck by this. It says the department receives about half a million passport applications each week, uh, which wow. is about 30 percent. This was in 2023 or late 2022. And it said it was about 30 percent more than during the same time last year. So for mm. whatever reason, a lot more people, it seems, are applying for passports these days. And uh, yeah, and yeah, I think don't it's probably the pandemic. Up. Probably the pandemic and people wanting to get stuff off that bucket list. All right. uh, That's it for the news fix. Let us do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. To my great delight, listeners have been calling in about cherry blossom season. Here's a voice memo we got from a listener in Japan. 
My name is Matthew Damp, and I, I live in Makuhari Baytown, which is the Chiba side of Tokyo. And I had a little mm -hmm. tidbit to add to your uh, Make Me Smart about the Hanami in Tokyo. Way back in the day, some of the uh, daimyo, the samurai who were in charge, the samurai lords in charge of different areas, would intentionally plant cherries, cherry trees, along the sides of the dikes that they've built. And then every year they lay down fresh gravel and get free work from all the people coming to watch the, the cherry blossoms. They would pack down the fresh gravel. Apparently that oh became God. common all over the place. So when you see pictures of cherry trees down the edges of dikes and canals in Japan, that's why. That is, that amazing. is amazing. Jinx. Um, yeah, <laughs> I the love their that. reaction that's, to that, I think. <laughs> that is such a great tip. Like, that is the thing you throw out in trivia, you know, or at a cocktail party where you're like, did you know? Well, we're talking about cherry blossoms. And just like, wow, that's so cool. Thank you so much, Matthew. I'm yeah, going to remember Thank you for that. sharing that. For sure. Um, and speaking of cherry blossoms, we also got a gorgeous aerial photo from Lily in Seattle, and it is of cherry trees in full bloom on the University of Washington's campus, apparently the best known spot in the area for cherry blossoms. And it's really incredible. The light is beautiful. It makes me want to be there. So we're going to add that photo to our show page if you want to go check it out. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really stunning picture. You see this, like, gorgeous sunset with, like, oranges and, and blues in the background and these big white puffy clouds. And then it's, like, this look down on a quad with, like, the paths crisscrossing across the bright green. And then the entire sort of quad area is rimmed by these very puffy, bright pink flowering trees with these sort of pastel-colored buildings that are all, like, white, whitish gray stone and, and blue roofs, you know, just behind them all the way around. It's a lovely photo. Yeah, yeah it certainly makes me want to go. How's the cherry blossom scene in D.C. right now? They're they're pretty much gone at this point. Oh, no, really? um, but, you know, they, they were nice. They don't last that long. And, um, yeah. you know, I'm in St. Paul, uh, Minnesota at the moment where there are not so many flowering trees to be seen. <laughs> Alex, the engineer, is like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Still coming. All right. Before we go, we are going to leave you with this this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? In the absolute amazingness of Marissa Cabrera, after I was talking yesterday about wanting to talk to one of these new astronauts from the Artemis mission, she somehow pulled it together. And this morning, I got to speak to the commander of the Artemis uh, II mission, and his name is Reed Weissman. And here's his answer to the Make Me Smart question. So when I was a kid growing up, I would watch space shuttles launch from Kennedy Space Center on the coast of Florida. And I, I truly thought rocket ships just went up into space and that was it. And uh, it, it, honestly, it wasn't until I was far too old that I realized rocket ships accelerate downrange almost parallel to Earth, like throwing a baseball as fast as possible. And that is how you get into orbit, uh, achieving about 17,000 miles an hour for low Earth orbit. And then... Uh, I can't wait to see that on Artemis as we're heading out to the moon because we're going to go to some fantastic orbits on our way. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, it was just like, how's your day, Kimberly? I started my day talking to an astronaut. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that for a Tuesday. It really doesn't. Not for a Tuesday, especially. <laughs> especially. I want to hear more of that conversation. Mm -hmm. You will. Don't worry. 
<laughs> well, we would love to hear something you've been wrong about. Leave us a voicemail with your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278 or 508-U-B-SMART. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Our intern is Antonio Barreras. Today's program was engineered by Drew Drostad with help over here in St. Paul by Alex Simpson and mixing by Gary O'Keefe. Ben Polliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our acting senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. What's the weather like in New York right now? It looks incredible outside. I think it's almost 70. I have to go out for a walk. Oh, man. I know. I haven't been out yet, though, which kills me. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost to splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.